Well, once again, it's the opportunity to ask any questions that uh, might be arising, so please uh, don't be shy. Thank you. So in the previous meditation, um, every time you would ask us to forgive someone, um, the forgiving didn't seem so tough, but what would happen is, what's happening is it keeps turning into shame. Shame? Yes. That, um, Shame on... How could I have done that? Especially for like three or four people. How could I have said that? How could I, how could I have done that? And I'm not able to relate. I'm, I'm not able to deal with the shame currently. And if you could please talk about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, very good point. Um, people could hear. So when we bring up things that we have said or done that were hurtful to others in particular, then we feel a, a sense of shame. Uh, it's very interesting how um, that sense of shame or moral sensitivity is, in its essence, is regarded as a great spiritual quality. So in, the, in the Pali, they have a pair of, of terms, hiri and otapa. So uh, hiri is... Uh, what you would call your conscience or your sense of honor and then otapa is um, sometimes translated as a, a wise fear of consequences uh, it can also be sometimes it relates to um, uh, the painful feeling of seeing the unskillful action of, of others so it is not necessarily associated with, with your own actions so Hiri and Otapa, they're called the Lokapala, the guardians of the world. And so that the more spiritual maturity a person has, the more Hiri Otapa they have. <laughs> so you might think, that sounds awful. <laughs> I want to feel better about myself rather than worse about myself. But uh, again, it's, your question is extremely pertinent because it's when self-view comes in, and that sense of hiri, that kind of, of um, moral sensitivity, that sense of, of conscience. Um, when self-view takes that over, then it turns into guilt. I'm a terrible person, I'm awful, how could I have done that? So uh, then it becomes uh, a, a burden or a problem or stressful. In itself, um, hiri and otapa, they work like, exactly like physical pain. So pain works by being unpleasant. That's how it protects us. You know, when you, when you cut yourself, you damage yourself, and ow, you, you, you look after the thing that you've, you've damaged. You clean it up and you protect it, you cover it up with some bandage. Um, the pain is Mother Nature's way of helping you to look after it. Our ancestors back in the animal world and, and you know, before, and, uh, the ones who didn't feel much pain, they were the ones who died of infections. <laughs> So uh, it's rather like fear. Fear works by being an unpleasant emotion. Like when you're close to the edge of the cliff, fear is, what's, is what helps you to stay alive. Uh, again, our ancestors, well, they probably weren't our ancestors because they fell off the cliff. <laughs> the ones who passed on their genes were the ones who went, ooh, that's a bit close, and, and backed off. So fear works by being unpleasant. Pain works by being unpleasant. Hiriotapa also works exactly by being unpleasant. It's a painful emotion. And, uh, but it's taken as an attribute of spiritual purification as the, the more you develop the heart, the more painful it is when something is done that is hurtful. So it's kind of the flag goes up quicker. 
Um, the trick then, or the skill, is not letting self-view uh, take it over, but rather being able to identify, yeah, that was really unkind. That came from a really selfish, lazy place. Ow! <laughs> Ow! And so, as I was saying with the meditation on emotion yesterday, just let that owl be without a commentary. The more wordless, the better. And so, that's the cause, this is the effect. Ow! That's it. And then that pain is what teaches us most completely and most effectively. And so, if the thinking mind jumps in and says, Oh, I'm a terrible person, I'm so awful, I can never be forgiven, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> it can confuse the picture, even with good intentions. It can keep feeding the sense of, I did this, I'm an awful person, I should never do that again, I promise I, 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 I. <laughs> the more wordless it is, the more direct. It's like, here's the cause, something that was said that was, was coming from a place of selfishness, of unkindness, that's the cause, here's the effect. Ow! That's all, that's all the story that's needed. So, it takes quite a bit of mindfulness, particularly with, with guilt and, and, uh, and self-hatred and such like, we can get some very deeply, Im uh, <laughs> deeply embedded ruts uh, for the mind. But it's a very helpful distinction to, to make. Usually, hiri and otapa, they're taken as psychological qualities, the, the, the world guardians, the lokapala. But occasionally, in Thailand, they are represented in deva-like forms. Many, many years ago, Ajahn Sumedho had said, whenever I build a, a, a temple, like a, a monastery um, temple building, I'd like to have statues of hiri and otapa outside the, the door. He'd seen it in a couple of places in Thailand, and he thought, that's really good, because they symbolize that, that quality of, of guardianship, of protection. And so uh, when the temple at Amravati was being built, there was a Thai artist. He wasn't a sculptor, he was a painter, uh, Pang Chanasai. And so um, Ajahn Sumedha asked Pang if he would paint these images of Hiri and Otapa. So the, the doors into the temple at Amravati in England, they've got Hiri and Otapa on either side of the doors as you go in. Most people think, oh, there's a, a pink deva and a blue deva. <laughs> They're not labeled with the whole sort of narrative, but uh, that's the, the intention. And it's like the, the, the temple of the heart is protected by Hiri and Otapa. That's the symbolism that Ajahn Sumedha wanted to, to present. So it, it takes quite a bit of mindfulness to see um, that self-view kind of coming in and taking over. But because you know oh, that's what's happening, <laughs> then to use this understanding of Hiriotapa to clarify that as you see that happening, well, wait a minute, if somebody else had done that, uh, then I would see that as unskillful and, uh, and I would recognize the painful result of it. But that's all. I wouldn't be so quick to add something onto it. Um, and it makes it a little, a little simpler. So there's an honesty, recognizing that, well, that was unskillful. I did act in a very, uh, a very impatient and uh, insensitive way. Yes, that was a mistake. But uh, it's very interesting in, in the Vinaya scriptures about the monastic discipline, over and over again, it comes across that the, the Buddha didn't expect his disciples to never make mistakes. I mean, the Vinaya is like five books of mistakes. It's like the kind of 
It's like how to get it wrong as a human being. <laughs> All the many and various ways you can be stupid in the spiritual life. I mean, really, it's like 10,000 different mistakes that people made. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't expect people to never make mistakes. But what is said over and over again is that if you see your transgression as such and endeavor to, um, to learn from that, to do better in the future, then this is called development in this Dharma and discipline. So it's not a matter of never making mistakes, but it's recognizing, yeah, that was, that was a mistake. That, went, uh, that, was, that was such. Okay, what can be learned from that? and then letting that inform our actions in the future. So I hope that's helpful. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. John, thank you for sharing your journey with melanoma. A lot of that resonated with me. Uh, this is somewhat an extension uh, to the question my friend just asked. I have been struggling with a health ailment for about a decade now. And there are moments where I'm in deep pain and my sense of self is very heightened. And I ask myself, why me? You know, <laughs> I'm a good person. I work with women and children in distress. I've done this. And then I'm like, and I remember having a, an episode of pain in another monastery in, in Ladakh. And I remember the monk walked up to me and he could notice because I was, you know, not looking very comfortable. And I sort of shared with him later. And he said, would you rather this happen to anyone else? Um, and I said, no. And that was the last time I sort of struggled with why me? Mm -hmm. But there are still moments where I'm in unbearable pain. And it's unbearable because I tend to lose consciousness and I wake up in hospitals. And, and I'm very angry in those moments, you know? Angry. I'm very upset. And I'm not quite sure. I haven't really processed what that feeling is. But I'm curious to know what that, what part of me is sort of, I can't really put a finger on it. I'm not sure I'm making a lot of sense, but it's not, I mean, I've kind of gone past the point of why me, but then I'm probably stuck in that why this, why this still, you know, and for how much longer. Mm -hmm. um, and my condition is something that goes misdiagnosed, mostly happens to women, has no cause, has no cure. Um, so that sense of despondency creeps up sometimes, but I was wondering how to make sense of this and how to, you know, uh, just one more thing. What I'm struggling with most is that now there's almost a sense of entitlement, like I know pain. So when I see people struggling with something, I'm like, oh, you don't know pain. <laughs> That's hardly anything, you know, like if somebody's struggling with something, I feel like I'm not showing up for the people in my life because somewhere I have this little chip on my shoulder because Let I know tell you about my I know suffering, yeah. exactly. And yeah. I feel terrible after, you know, uh, I show up like this in moments of just this very heightened sense of self is followed by this downward spiral where I'm like, wow, that's so shallow. What's wrong with me? Yes. You yes. know, but I end up doing that very often and I'm really struggling with that because yeah. everyone's going through their own problems, right? Yeah. And to them, that's the worst thing that could happen. So how do I sort of get myself out of this tangle? I feel like a cat chasing after a bowl of yarn on most days. If you could just help guide, thank you. Well, I'll try to um, offer a few things with respect to that. The last thing you were saying about entitlement, uh, it reminded me that in that week uh, between when I, the 
the, the dermatologist took the, the mole off my shoulder in, in Ukiah and sent it to the lab. I was invited to a conference on compassion at Esalen Institute. Esalen is a sort of epicenter of West Coast California psychology and therapy. And, and, um, and so uh, there was a lot of entitlement in the air. <laughs> Not to malign my fellow Californians, but a, there was a, what they call the California wine with an H. Is <laughs> that the, the, there's a, a lot of the California wine, whining was um, in the air. And there was this enormous urge within me to say, well, let me tell you about me, my, you know, just three days ago, you know. And, you know, I've just started this new, and I could feel this kind of uh, urge uh, wanting to say, well, let me tell you about my pain. You know, yours is, you know, stop whining, you know. <laughs> I've got a real problem. <laughs> and so I, I can relate to that very directly. It was an incredible amount of restraint was required to shut up. Because I could see it wasn't coming from a very skillful place. It was, it was just um, uh, more reactive than responsive. Uh, it's interesting that when you sort of come to in the hospital, what you feel is anger. That's, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist. My, my degree was in psychology and physiology, but I'm not a psychologist. And so I won't pretend to interpret that but it is interesting um, and uh, from what you were saying I think uh, both the why me and maybe what you're experiencing now is a kind of boiled down essence of that that why me is that somehow we come into this this birth as human beings not, not everybody for sure but of assuming that I have the right to live a long life and be comfortable and be surrounded by people that I like and who like me and I'll have food and shelter and clean water and I'll live a comfortable and valuable life. It's not something that we sit down and, <laughs> and think through and spell out. But often there's that kind of... And I, I meet a lot of people and a lot of people coming for advice and I sort of, well, how can this be happening to me? You know, I've lived a good life, I'm a good person. But if you look beyond the human, quote-unquote, civilized human domain, particularly sort of educated middle-class human domain, you look at the animal world and, the, and the, the general biosphere, it's pretty brutal. And uh, the number of offspring that survive into adulthood, whether it's in terms of the plant world, the, the animal world, the bird world, or, you know, whatever, is a small proportion. Yeah, life is, uh, is brutal. And uh, the unconscious expectations or presumptions that we have can be fed to us as small children, as we're growing up, and then those signals are affirmed by the people around us, and, and we, we assume that's, that's the reality, that's the case. And so a lot of growing up in, in general terms, and particularly in spiritual terms, is in a sense casting the view wider to look at the the broader world. I mean, how many birds do you see walking around uh, because their wings don't work anymore? Nahin. <laughs> as soon as they can't fly, they're finished. Yeah, that, that's the way nature works. Yeah. Uh, how, many, how many retired cats do you find? <laughs> Maybe one or two <laughs> really super loved cats that you know, can't walk or feed themselves anymore, but Nature uh, is, uh, is brutal.
The natural order is brutal. And then, again, it's kind of adopting a, a nature-centered perspective rather than a human-centered perspective or a kind of a middle-class educated. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't have any clue of the, the privilege that I had been born into, even though my family was quite poor. Um, uh, I had no clue of the privilege I'd been born into until I, until I started living in different environments, and particularly in, in northeast Thailand in the, in the late 70s, where in the village, let alone in the monastery, there was no running water, no electricity. The main highway between the provincial capitals of Ubon and Sisuket was a dirt road. It was like, <laughs> life was very, very different. It's quite ordinary for the, the women in the village. They'd have eight or ten children, two or three would die in an infancy. It was ordinary. You know, it's not extremely painful, but still, that that was their life in, uh, in, in growing up in in that world, and so that was. Uh, yeah, I, I'd had other wake up calls along the way, but um, as a child, you think you know, everyone has a school uniform you know, <laughs> and a cap and a tie, and you know, and your name tag sewn into all your all your clothes and and that kind of thing. And then you grow up and you realise no. <laughs> You know, that uh, the, uh, then being, being British, having an education, uh, you, you're just sort of resenting being sent to school, like, why do I have to do this all the time? And, <laughs> and then as you grow up and you look a bit wider, you realize, well, having it, being able to learn to read and write, having any kind of an education, having a food supply, clean water to drink, it's a great privilege. So, um, not to make ourselves feel guilty for having a privileged upbringing, but just to look at cause and effect, that, in a way, contemplating that kind of dhamma niyamata, that looking at the, the lawfulness of that, and the idapachayata, the law of cause and effect, that because of this background, I have inherited this set of assumptions, like, wow, <laughs> was I getting a, a limited picture of what human beings can expect and what we're a part of. Wow, look at that. So uh, that kind of active, wise reflection, contemplation, it's, uh, it's very different from the kind of instinctual, <laughs> kind of wordless raging and angry feelings. It's, it's more from the reptile brain. But wise reflection uh, and the use of contemplation is an extraordinarily skillful tool to put those instinctual urges of, of you know, rage or resentment or fear and, and so on, it helps to put them in perspective. They're still going to be there, but if you can see, well, this is where it's coming from, and uh, this is manifesting in this way, I don't have to suppress it, I don't have to feel bad about it, but this is the cause, this is the effect, here it is. And so that's what comes to mind as a, as a kind of an approach. Um, Again, uh, I couldn't say exactly what would be most helpful for you, but um, that, in, in a sense, well, wow, how, how marvelous that you've got a brain that works clearly enough to be able to recognize this is what my mind is doing with this. Sadhu, 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 you know. That we, and again, not to be sort of, you know, you should be grateful for the things that you have uh, as a kind of moral threat, <laughs> but rather, well, let's not forget that how wonderful it is that we've got a mind that can reflect upon these conditions rather than just get lost in rage or resentment or blame and such like. And that if we really contemplate cause and effect, and, and the simple teachings like 
birth is dukkha. That's not just in the maternity ward or the birth process. It's like having been born, then with it comes, uh, comes dukkha, the difficulties of uh, the, a body and a, and a mind in a living world. Personally, I've found a lot of value coming from reflecting on the animal world and just say, well, why do we see the human world as so different from the animal world? And the closer you look, <laughs> the bigger the overlap there is. It kind of offends our sense, no, we're totally different. We're absolutely beyond that. This is the manusa loco. We're not animals. But if you, if you look and study the animal world and how it functions, uh, it helps to give a much, much more balanced view to the human realm as it's experienced. Yes. I wanted to know a little bit more the difference between Dhamma Niyamata and the Ida Pachyata. Uh, because very often in the teachings, you know, we're told that just rest in the natural state of the mind. Or that a lot of our suffering arises because we don't accept things as they are. <laughs> I mean, I've come across these two concepts before. And the only thing I can think of is that in the karmic law of causation, there is a volition involved. And that in the natural law of causation, I just want to know more. How do you distinguish between these two? Because in some sense, it feels like you know, you're born out of your karma. And everything, the world, the container world, and the beings within it is just like a projection of your karmic you know, whatever past imprints and that the Buddhas are free of, you know, creating karma. So how do you distinguish this natural order between the Dhamma, Niyamata and the Ida Pachyata? Well, they're, they're, they're all interrelated. They're, there's not like a sharp line between where this is strictly Dhamma Titata and that's, that stops and then over here Dhamma Niyamata begins, and then that stops. Just like Anicca and Dukkha and Anatta are all interrelated. So that there's an overlap. So these are, like many of the Buddha's teachings, they're kind of broad brush definitions. So there's, a, there's an overlap between those two, between the Dhamma Niyamata, the, the, the lawfulness of the Dhamma, or the natural law, things functioning according to natural law. And then uh, Iddha Pachayata, uh, the law of cause and effect or conditionality. So Iddha that's the main sort of engine of dependent origination. So that whole set of teachings around dependent origination, the Iddha is the sort of driving force, the central um, process around which that whole development of dependent origination and dependent cessation uh, is is built or is structured. One thing conditioning another, one thing affecting another, one, one thing having a, an impact upon another. And so that's mostly to do with the, the mind of an individual experiencing the sense world and then making choices. So ignorance uh, conditions formations, formations condition consciousness, consciousness conditions namarupa, uh, namarupa conditions the six senses, then they condition vedana, which condition tanha, upadana, bhava, craving, uh, clinging, and becoming, and that leads to jati, birth, and sokaparideva, dukkha, domina, supayasa. Really long Pali words: sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. So that idapachayata is 
kind of the, the, the driving process of how the dependent origination works. Dhamma niyamata is more like the laws of biology and physics and chemistry, how that the how the universe operates so that the Big Bang has got nothing to do with with personal choice. <laughs> it's a it's much more of a general law how nature operates. So uh, personal choice is part of that niyama. Not to get too lost in detail, in the Pali tradition, it's not actually put together in one single sutta, but if you draw upon a few different suttas, um, there's a little booklet of mine that talks about this in some detail called um, Who is Pulling the Strings? It's about Upeka, it's the fourth of the four Brahma-Vihara booklets, and so it talks a lot about causality. Because the, to develop uh, Upeka, equanimity or serenity, is a, is a lot to do with the uh, uh, laws of cause and effect, uh, and how that works. But in that book, I spell out these five niyamas. They're talked about in more detail in the, uh, as a sort of a group in the commentaries. In the, in the original suttas, you have to piece it together a little bit. And Venerable um, Payuto Tansomdet Puttakosajan, who's one of the great uh, meditators and, and scholars in Thailand, has uh, written about this very helpfully, the five niyamas. So you can find literature. And in that little booklet of mine, I think I quote his... Uh, his book also books the origin for that. So the five niyamas, this is basically what constitutes the experience of this moment for all of us here in Deer Park and everywhere. The first is utu niyama, the laws of physics and chemistry. Those are not personal. You are not involved in deciding on the weight of the electron. Right? None of us were in the committee you know, discussing gravity. <laughs> Or how to spread the galaxies around. That's all completely non-personal. Uh, the weight of the oxygen atom, the, you know, the, the way oxygen and hydrogen combine together and, and the nature of the water molecule. All of this is completely non-personal. So utuniyama is the laws of physics and chemistry. We are all affected by those, right? The force of gravity will be pulled to the ground. The nature of light, the nature of sound, the nature of gravity, material form, how material objects interact with each other. That's all completely non-personal. We're highly affected by those laws every moment. The laws of physics and chemistry, but they're not personal at all. Second one, bijaniyama, the laws of biology. So again, none of us were involved in inventing aerobic respiration or uh, how vision works or, or hearing works. The laws of biology, again, they're, they're non-personal. But we are thoroughly and completely affected by those laws all the time. Having a human body, needing to eat, needing to breathe, being female, being male, being in the aging process. Bija niyama. So bija literally means a seed. Utu actually just means the weather. <laughs> Utu niyama means the, the weather, but it means the, more specifically physics, chemistry. So bija niyama. So then the third one... Kamaniyama, that's the only one that involves personal choice. So the laws of, of kama, intentional action. So that works lawfully if, if an action is uh, accompanied by an unskillful intention, there'll be a painful result. If it's accompanied by a, a skillful intention, there'll be a pleasant result. If it's accompanied by a neutral intention, there'll be a neutral result. 
or an unspecified result. The, the fourth one is chitaniyama, how the mind works. Again, none of us were involved in uh, the construction of imagination or memory or um, concentration. The, uh, these are non-personal. We experience how the mind works, how memory works, how memory doesn't work. <laughs> Uh, how the the brain processes impulses from the the optic nerve, the auditory nerve, the olfactory nerve, your nose, the gustatory nerves from your mouth and your tongue, and so on. So that the way that the mind works, chitaniyama, thought, imagination, um, emotion, uh, all of that function lawfully, uh, but they're not they're not personal. And then the fifth one is dhammaniyama which is at the most basic level, the function of reality, the conditioned, the unconditioned, the fabric of, of all things and non-things <laughs> at their most basic reality. So Dhamma-niyamata is a package that contains all those five niyamas. So it's personal action and the results of personal action are just one little tiny subset of that. So idapachayata. Uh, again, this is just one perspective on it, but you having asked the question, that's one way of talking about it. It's the gentleman at the back there. One of the problems that has happened with urbanization in modern world that we have ended up creating is uh, life has got atomized. People are living all alone now and uh, it's becoming very lonely and atomized life in cities. So I had two questions there. One What's your view on euthanasia or dignitas? And second, uh, if you're living in a city uh, and all your community is slowly getting older with you and they are all going to go together nearly around the same time, how can one plan to be in a commune rather than be in hospice, which are very lonely and sad-looking places when <laughs> one sees them? Uh, any view on that would be very useful. Yes, um Oh, my, my view on euthanasia is that uh, deliberately taking a human life is, is extremely bad karma. And that uh, it's, uh, so it's a question that comes up more and more often, um, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and so forth. So uh, I, uh, uh, I treat it very, very carefully. Uh, according to our monastic rule, if a... If a uh, uh, a fully ordained monk or nun, if we recommend s suicide to someone and they, they kill themselves, then our life as a monk or as a nun is finished. It's one of those four defeat rules. Uh, so the Buddha took that extremely seriously. So recommending the advantages in death, encouraging suicide, encouraging death or euthanasia. And then if it's carried out, then if I recommend that and someone says, oh, Ajahn Amara recommends uh, euthanasia, if... Uh, <laughs> If you, carry, if you act on that, then I'm not a monk anymore. Just as soon as you die, my, my monastic life is over. So that gives you a, a bit of a sense of, of the weight, just on a of legal level <laughs> with respect to monastic life. But I do feel it's, it's a thank you for the question, because it's very much a, a related to self-view. What's happening more and more in the West and in, around the world is the sense of, if I can't live life on my own terms, then life is not worth living, so I want to die. And to me, that is like a self-view plus, plus, plus. That's a really a bad mistake. 
I realise I might have a bit of a biased view, but it's, I have quite strong feelings about this. I think it's, it's such, a, such a bad mistake to make because, again, going back to our friend at the back there talking about having a chronic illness, chronic pain. So if, if I decide, oh, my, you know, I, I can't do all the things I used to do, uh, I'm not so strong, I'm not so capable, uh, I'm losing my hearing, my mobility, therefore better to, I'd prefer to die. What does that say about the people who haven't been able to hear for years? What does that say about people in wheelchairs? How do they feel? <laughs> but, you know, if I can't be fully mobile, then my life is not worth living. And I, I'm informed by a fellow that I knew very well, a quadriplegic man in, in California, was one of the, the board of directors of the, the charity that invited us to come and start a monastery there. He was run over by a pickup truck when he was 19. He was a medical student. He just finished climbing down Half Dome Peak in Yosemite, which is like a 3,000-foot vertical cliff and he was resting in the grass at the bottom of the cliff and a pickup truck which shouldn't have been driving there drove over him, broke his back. So he was in hospital for a year um, and uh, when he came out of it he was extremely um, depressed and, and sad. He said he, he developed a great affection for Filipina nurses because they were the ones who said, no, no, you can't give up, you can't give up, stay with it. <laughs> he said, I just want to go, I, I don't want to live this way. And so he said, those, those nurses were amazing. So they just wouldn't let me grumble. <laughs> they wouldn't let me just check out. And so he was genuinely, very sincerely grateful because you know, he had this whole life ahead of him. He was a, a, you know, a, a, literally a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Californian <laughs> with a medical student, the whole life ahead of him, all of the advantages. And suddenly uh, he was in a wheelchair, and quadriplegic, so he had a little bit of movement in his hands uh, and, not, uh, and not, none in his legs at all. So I had many conversations with him during that time because of, he was very much a part of the group that was helping that place in California to get going. And um, so he was very conversant with working with life-threatening conditions uh, and also the issues of suicide, euthanasia and so on. And it was very helpful to talk with him because he was determined that his life was worth living. He never received any charitable aid from the government. He wouldn't accept any kind of government, um, uh, say, bonuses or payments on account of his injury. He was determined to be self-sufficient and to, to work and to support himself. Um, he's quite an extraordinary person uh, called Daniel Barnes is his name. And so having had so many conversations with him, <laughs> a lot of those come back to my mind. When you see reports in the media, there were uh, a couple of sisters uh, recently, uh, uh, the last year or so, who committed suicide uh, or had themselves killed because they didn't want to live anymore. They thought, well, you know, we can't live as we choose to, and so better to die. And they got themselves legally killed. Um, but other members of the family were, <laughs> were, were very upset and unhappy about their choice. Because also what we might think of as our individual choice, if Dad says, life's not worth living for me anymore, then, you know, your kids might say, Dad, you know, we're busy, you know, elsewhere, but we want, we, we want you around. We don't want to lose you. You're, you're important to us. So it's not just your life. <laughs> we're not really individuals. Our life is a relational state. We live in relationship to other beings, not just to family, but to the living world. So I feel... Uh, there are obviously social issues about isolation and loneliness and so on, but uh, I feel it's a, a terrible mistake to choose to end your life or get someone else to kill you because of uh, just a, a, a diminishing set of faculties.
There's a, a dialogue that the Buddha has with Nakula Pitta, who was about 100 years old. And this, this couple, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, had been uh, very devoted supporters of the Buddha in this lifetime, but also said they, they'd been his parents in 500 previous lifetimes. So they had a particularly close relationship. They lived at Sumsumaragira in the Besakala Grove. So you often hear them mentioned with that name. And uh, Nakula Pitta comes to the Buddha one day and says, uh, Venerable Sir, I am old. <laughs> I am really decrepit. And yeah, my body is, 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 is aging and wrinkled and uh, with so many aches and pains and ailments. You know. um, what, what is good for me to focus on at this point? And then the Buddha says, Nakula Pitta, it's far better to be afflicted in body and not afflicted in mind than afflicted in mind and not afflicted in body. And then he goes on to repeat the whole of the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on, on not-self. Um, and so that's a, a very helpful principle. Uh, obviously, it's better to do your homework before you enter the exam hall, <laughs> to, to have done a bit of preparation before you become aged and decrepit and your faculties are diminished. So do your prep work before the, the, the tests come. That's... Uh, uh, some, of it, some of you might think, yeah, well, it's all very well, Ajahn. I, <laughs> I've only just found out about this, and I'm already gray-haired. So. But uh, we, you know, we start from where we are. But uh, that sense of having a, a, an unafflicted mind, as the body loses its faculties, then there can be a great sense of ease. Uh, I would say Ajahn Sumedha is a very good example. So he's 88 now. Uh, he can't really walk on his own. He has to lean on an arm. His eyesight is very poor. He can't see more than about two meters. So, and he's, he's got uh, numbness in his legs, in his feet. So he can't balance very easily. So he, even a walking stick isn't enough. He has to have a living arm to lean on to walk. Uh, so he can't see very well. His hearing is fading. Um, he's absolutely fine. <laughs> he's really enjoying his life. <laughs> he, can't, he can't walk by himself. He can't see very well, he can't hear very well, but he's happy as can be. Yeah. So I'd say as a very good living example of like, yeah, as the, the, the faculties go, then we don't have to, to be uh, depressed or miserable about that. Of course, it's helpful if you've got some people around that can you know, provide your food and <laughs> help you to, to pay the bills and do whatever. But uh, again, those are things that is helpful to, not in a mercenary way, like uh, I better have some friends around me so they'll, they'll be able to look after me when I get decrepit, but just to be conscious that our friendships, our spiritual relationships, our kalyanamitta, these are extremely important. And that uh, if we uh, take the trouble to cultivate those friendships, not just from what our friends will give to us, but also what we can give to our friends. <laughs> it's, it's not a one-way thing. It's also that uh, we can provide help and support for others. And so that um, if along the way we create a, a network or a field of friendship, then as our faculties go, then the natural result of that is the people who have been helped or who your friends will draw close and say, let me help out. I, I hear you, you couldn't make it to the shops last week. Hey, you know, uh, we can do that. We can help out. Like, uh, uh, do you know you can, you can put in an order over, over Uber Eats nowadays? <laughs> it's probably come to India <laughs> or the Indian equivalent. There's tiffin carriers that can come to, to, uh, to your door. So uh, I feel that 
there are issues of isolation and loneliness. You can't just sort of wish those away. But we can also see the value of friendship and cultivate that uh, as we go along. Yes. Ajahn, I have a question about organ donation. I may be incorrect, but in some teachings I attended, uh, it was not recommended according to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition because after death, you're supposed to have three days of uh, whatever the tradition that is followed and you're not supposed to disturb the body. I may have misunderstood, but that's what I recall. But thinking from a bodhisattva point of view, Mm If one is a practicing Buddhist, it would be a good idea to donate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is, your, what is the view on that? Well, I carry an organ donation card with my passport. <laughs> so anything that anyone can make use of when I'm gone, they're welcome to it. Um, so I think uh, as a basic principle, yeah, absolutely, a good idea. In the, the southern Buddhist world, they don't have quite the same sort of detailed mechanics as, uh, of the, or the process is mapped out in quite such detail. But also nowadays, with um, modern-day modern medicine, it's quite possible. And th- this happened recently that the, the, um, the sister of one of our former nuns in our community, uh, at the age of 25, apparently in, in perfect health, died. They still don't know the, the cause of death. She was at a family dinner on the, on the Saturday evening and said, oh, you know, I, I don't feel very well at, at 8 o'clock in the evening. Uh, she was taken to hospital that night. Um, even the next day, they were, they were doing various tests, and the, the numbers were coming out very strange. And um, at you know, three in the afternoon, she said, uh, "Oh, she was a, a dance teacher. I better call the, the dance studio and tell them I won't be able to be along this evening." Twenty minutes later, she was dead. She was young. She was uh, apparently in perfect health, and she'd made a, a like a living will or declaration. She wanted her organs to be to be used. And so that after she had died, then the hospital kept the body on a kind of life support system, kept it breathing artificially. And it all happened so fast that her other family members wanted to come around. So she died on the Sunday, and then they kept the body uh, alive through the artificial breathing uh, for four days. And we were asked, because she she was well known to us, to the monastery, so we did some chanting when she died, and then they said, oh, they're going to they're gonna take her organs on the Thursday. Can you also do some chanting that that time? And she wanted that to, to happen. So there was three or four days between the time she died and when her organs were taken. Not because of any kind of religious um, process, uh, but also because the family wanted time to, to gather and say goodbye to her and uh, to be with her before uh, she uh, sort of died completely. She was completely brain dead from the Sunday. Then her organs, her, her kidneys, her liver, her heart were shared around the country. So uh, I, I'm fully in support of that. And uh, it's also Buddhists are well known for being providers of particularly uh, cornea transplants that to people who de- donate their, their eyes when they, when they die, that are uh, much appreciated in countries where they have stigma against the body being incomplete when they, when they die. So that... Uh, Buddhist countries and Buddhist people can supply organs in countries where there's a, um, a shortage of, of organs and, and uh, the cornea to transplant. One more question related. Which one is euthanasia and which one is doing something active to expedite death? The other is, suppose somebody has 
terminal cancer and they just don't want active treatment. Um, they just want things to take their own course. They've had enough of treatment. They're having too many side effects and they don't want to be a, maybe a burden on their family or whatever. How is that viewed when somebody is, decides not to continue with active prolongation of life? Uh, that's, it's, it's interesting, again, with the Buddha as a lawyer. <laughs> it's, it's all spelled out in great detail in our Vinaya discipline. So we're not obligated to, uh, to do everything that we can to prolong a life if we have any influence. That's no, there's no obligation for that. Uh, anything that we do to shorten a life in any kind of artificial way is taken as killing. But there's no uh, requirement to do everything possible to prolong a, prolong a life. So um, if, uh, if a person says, uh, I, uh, I don't want active, any more active treatment, or they've got do not resuscitate tattoo, I mean, this, the, in, literally, there's, people have DNR tattooed on their chest that they say, no, do not resuscitate. And that just to make sure the message gets through in the emergency room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, very sort of, uh, people who wouldn't normally have tattoos, they, they would go to a tattoo parlor to get DNR tattooed on their, their chest to make sure that they really don't want that, to make sure that it's not just missed by any emergency room person. So that, that's fine. That, that's the individual's choice. Uh, I mean, it's a it can be a fine line, but uh, and you have to sort of be mindful of any contribution that you make to the discussion. But uh, if a person chooses, they know I don't want any more treatment. I just want to let things go. Like a very good friend of ours, uh, Noi Thompson, who is a, a Thai woman, uh, been a supporter of our communities for more than forty years. She was living in Chiang Mai, in northern Thailand, and um, in February she was diagnosed with uh, abdominal cancer. She had various rounds of treatment, and then by the time it got to May, then the doctors were all saying, this is unstoppable, there's, there's nothing much more we can do. So she said, all right, I'm going home. <laughs> so she just checked herself out of the hospital and moved to her, her home in, uh, in Meriam, outside of, of Chiang Mai, and then the family gathered around. And so, you know, it's mum's choice. The doctors said, really, this is untreatable, you're going to die. So she made the choice, okay. If this is the end, I want to die in my own home rather than in a hospital room. So she made that, that choice. And so I would say that's totally appropriate. Um, as monastics, we're not supposed to be involved in medical treatment at all or giving medical advice <laughs> at all. So we're not, again, that's a bit different from the, between the southern Buddhist world and the northern Buddhist world. But, uh, yeah, you're forbidden to act as doctors or give medical advice. And so when people say, what should I do, Ajahn? Should I have the operation or not? I said, you should ask yourself why you're asking me to make the decision for you. <laughs> if you can follow that. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we don't make those choices for people or give medical advice. But it's very clear that there's no obligation to try and prolong life. Or there's no sense of criticism if, like, if you say, oh, you could have helped them to live longer. It's like, well, maybe so, but it was, you know, it was their, their choice. Yeah. Ajahn, what about uh, palliative care? Because that is not euthanasia, but it is just easing the pain, and mm -hmm. that is what family members also yes, uh, do. Yeah, I would say that, that that's fine, just helping people to live as comfortably as possible during that 
that dying process. A friend of ours in Thailand, Ajahn Paisan, has a whole program called Path to Peaceful Death. And another friend of ours in Thailand, um, Kunying Chamunsi, has been trying to set up hospices in Thailand. They didn't really have a concept of a hospice because it would be in the old times when they had the seven or eight, ten children, then a few of the children would all be gathering around to help out. Now most families have two or three children. It's much less. And so the care for the elderly and the dying is much more needs to be sort of organized and socialized. So she's been campaigning for quite some time. Interestingly, 15 years ago, people said, you're nuts, what are you talking about? This is some Western thing, you know. And then 10 years later, can you help? <laughs> we need a program here. So she's uh, very actively involved in uh, trying to establish hospice care and, and get that hospice training set up in, in Thailand. So palliative care, I think, is having places where people can go, where they can be looked after. They can be pretty lonely and grim places, but also they, they can provide a, a, at least a supportive environment as the, the, the life fades out. Yes? Ajahn, are there any retreats for parents especially? I have a child and I'm looking for a place where I can attain a retreat, uh, but my main struggle so far has been uh, with my child, I cannot leave him anywhere. And also maybe I, I'm overprotective that I, I'm also not able to trust any, uh, <laughs> anybody uh, in family or, or yeah, that where I can leave him. So are there any, any places where they have such retreats? Um, I think you might have to start up a, your own center that <laughs> provides that. <laughs> I don't live in India, for a start, so this is unknown territory for me. I don't... Anybody in the room heard of such a place where the parents can meditate while some uh, benevolent people look after the children? How old is your child? He's now nine and a half. Um, nine and a half? Yeah. Around the world, uh, are there any, any uh, <clears throat> such places? People don't... Yeah, from village. Talk to him <laughs> after the retreat's finished, because of course no one's talking with anyone else at the moment. Yes. My question is on the lady who came for advice to Ajahn Chah, the old lady mm -hmm. who was uh, uh, dying, and Ajahn Chah said that there is nobody dying. The bodhicitta doesn't die. So my, my question is the same philosophy is in the Gita, the Atma doesn't die. And my question is, then we are practicing anatta. And there is a concept of Atma in Buddhism and I mean that whole concept of the Bodhicitta viewing, I asked you this question also, is that the Atma or is that the Bodhicitta is both the same or what is it? Or are there just different names to it? The word Bodhicitta never appears in the Pali Canon. So uh, that's, that's a Northern Buddhist term. I'm not saying it's incorrect or invalid, but it's, it's not a Pali term, it's not a term I, I use. And so when Ajahn Chah had that dialogue with the, the elder woman, what he said was, those who speak of birth and death are using the language of ignorant children. 
there's no one who's born, no one who dies. He didn't mention bodhicitta. Um, that uh, in Pali, the concept of atta is uh, a mental impression, the feeling of self or the sense of self. Uh, there is no place you get the word atta used to refer to some kind of absolute independent entity, uh, which is uh, roughly what is represented by Atman in the, in the Vedas, as, as my limited understanding. So that, uh, in a sense, what Ajahn Chah was uh, referring to is, is like I, I was saying earlier, essentially the fundamental nature of mind is Dhamma, or like a Dharmakaya in the northern Buddhist tradition. There are the three kayas, the physical body, the energy or etheric body, and the Dharma body, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya. So the Dharmakaya in Theravada, they don't use that. It's very, very rare. Um, as kind of, I think, one or two places in the Pali Canon where, where the word Dhammakaya is used. It's a very rare term. But Ajahn Chah is speaking from that place of that's the fundamental nature of mind is Dhamma. The mind is Dhamma. It's not a person, it's not an individual. And so it's not connected to time or location or individuality or, uh, or you know, cause and effect even. So that speaking from that place, again, uh, that's using that dialogue of the Buddha with Donna, the Brahmin, and another time someone came to Ajahn Chah and they said, who is Ajahn Chah? And he said, there is no Ajahn Chah. <laughs> you know, but face to face in a conversation, they say, there is no Ajahn Chah. You know, he was an Arahant, so he, he couldn't lie. <laughs> but saying, you know, there is no Ajahn Chah, like, that, that who is the wrong question, uh, or thinking of that name referring to some permanent independent entity as a, a mistaken view. So that kind of advice to the, the elder woman and his, his comments, it's to let go of that identification, I am an old person. No, <laughs> the Dhamma is, is apparent here and now. The Dhamma is the fundamental nature of reality. If you let go of identification, with the body, with the personality. I was referring to that term in the guided meditation, Sakaya Nirodha. If there's a letting go of, of identification with the, the kaya, the, the body, the physical person, um, then the mind is embodying Dhamma. It's uh, not just hearing Dhamma, seeing Dhamma, practicing Dhamma, realizing Dhamma, but Ajahn Chah would add on the extra being Dhamma. And not like not having been Dhamma, becoming Dhamma, but <laughs> realizing that's all that has been the, the very heart of what we are from the very beginning. So uh, bodhicitta is not a term that, that I, I use very much or, or ever, because in the northern Buddhist world, it's often used to refer to the intention to uh, keep being reborn, to realize Buddhahood. So cultivating bodhicitta is to do with compassion, to do with conscious, consciously being reborn. And so that doesn't really fit in that term of meaning within the, the southern Buddhist world in a close way. Uh, again, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong or, uh, or uh, not useful, but uh, it, it's not a term that, that I use. But Ajahn Chah is speaking from that place of being Dhamma. It's, like, it's a real Dhamma desana, you know, a demonstration of Dhamma or an embodiment of Dhamma. It's like the Dhamma speaking <laughs> when, he, when he would make those kind of comments. If that makes sense. Uh, so Ajahn, the, the part that is uh, observing the five khandhas, that object or whatever you may call it, 
I mean, uh, would that be called Dhamma itself? Well, uh, the way I talk, uh, I find the most easy to talk about it is say that quality of awareness is the Buddha. The substance, the fundamental reality is the Dhamma. The Buddha arises from the Dhamma. So the primary function of the Dhamma is, is the Buddha, is knowing, is awareness. So the primary activity or function of Dhamma is knowing, is awareness. So the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. That awareness is a natural quality that is a, an attribute of the Dhamma itself. Dhamma is a substance, the Buddha is the function. Sangha, when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, then what arises is the Sangha. When the awake mind sees the way things are, what arises is virtuous and benevolent conduct. The fabric of reality is Dhamma, and its function or its primary activity is awareness or knowing. So I think that's a very good place to pause.